Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about town traditions and transformational tidings. Well, folks, here we are, one week closer to the end of the year. I wonder what horrors await us. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Michael Page and that scarecrow guy... Our voice talents, Nick Goroff, Danielle Hewitt, and Kyle Stroud. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale of the evening is written by Michael Page and is performed by Nick Goroff. In it, we'll travel to a place called Slay Town, which unsurprisingly isn't as jovial as it sounds. So without further ado, I present to you Reindeer Games. Something is wrong with Slaytown. Roni knew that much about it. 
During the pre-COVID era of 2018, I was hired as a night security guard for a park in our town, right on the cusp of December. Since its grand opening in the 70s, the Acres were established as a Christmas theme park, scaled for locals and out-of-towners. Once nothing but a spread of wilderness along the Adirondack Mountains, now a scenic village where it was always holly and jolly. A place called Slaytown. From beyond the frosty gates, old iron lampposts guide you along a narrow path until you've reached a picture-perfect view of the 19th century. Crossroads glazed with cobblestone, shops with busy dormer windows, icicles hanging from powder-bleached roofs, smoke curling out of the chimneys. Cheery music pipes through the park's speakers, accompanied by a few carolers with warm mittens and blood-flushed faces. A horse, black as soot, clamps down Candy Cane Lane with a carriage of parents and happy, laughing children. Hot cocoa and ginger snaps linger in the air. And every night, as I pulled into the lot, the park had already fallen back to a brisk winter stillness. Despite the attempts to condition myself with day naps and blackout curtains, I always arrived feeling unrested. A plaque welcomed me at the gate, adding frozen peppermint letters, mix and mingle, jingle and crinkle. Hands buried in my jacket, I entered the gate and crunched up the rimy cobbles. I took a stroll past all the closed shops, only stopping to pick up a crinkled bag of candy left either by a child or an apathetic adult. I am watched by a set of fiberglass reindeer and lonely-eyed elves from the souvenir shop. As I reached the office building, I walked the short hall to my office, where I would spend most of my time. When I'm not making the periodic checks around the property, I am bodying a chair and desk, focused more on my college work than the cameras. Christmas comes early for the Dax. A framed news article sits between two landscape paintings celebrating Slaytown's opening day in the front lobby. The old ink reads. Different screens show what the park's security cameras pick up on a large monitor. The pale streak of the parking lot, the lifeless booths and eateries, and of course, the many sculptures of Whimsy Way. That was the focal point for Slaytown, a trail that cut through the overlapping pines and curved back to the park in a horseshoe pattern. Large and small sculptures practically danced out of the thickets in a yuletide merge of wonderment and nature along the mile-long footpath. Ice carvings dazzled with LED lighting, gingerbread cottages the size of sheds, poly-resin elves clasping hands together, and, naturally, who could possibly forget the reindeer? Nearly life-sized, the books emerge from the growth in cast-iron bodies and recycled scrap, hand-sculpted from a Brazilian artist. Due to the 
widening spread of homeless encampments around the vicinity and far too many incidents of drifters sleeping in the decorative cottages, the park hired out a security firm to keep them out, especially during the colder seasons. On the desk of my little office, I kept a note from Roni, the previous security guard. A sort of study guide he'd left me before his send-off. Admittedly, my impression of him wasn't the best when we first met. He was pale-faced, with a curly, gray-flecked chin, had eyes with as much life as an ashtray, and his gums, in a manner of speaking, were on the scurvy side. Despite the off-putting start, he ended up being a pretty nice guy, all sunny and full of talk all the time. Boy, did he like to talk. When I told him this was my first security gig, he gained permission to stick around a few shifts to show me the ropes. It was likely to make sure his replacement was up to snuff, but I felt that he also thrived on some new company. His list comprised the checkpoint system he'd made for night patrols around the park, most notably all the problem areas outside camera surveillance. As we walked and talked those few times, I'd sometimes catch the second-hand whiff of oily breath and body odor. Personal hygiene did not make it onto Roni's list. At 2 a.m., it was time for patrol. I grabbed my thermos and walked the usual route around the park, factoring in a piss when I reached Whimsy Way. Always hit there for some reason. Santa's out. The sign outside the workshop read while an anorexically thin Santa stood next to it, carved out of six-foot mahogany. Its eyes were too faded to see, and its once rosy cheeks were stuffed with black dots closer to tooth black. And on the face of it, Slaytown was like every other Christmas-oriented park where your parents brought you to gaze at warm lights, make snow angels, and meet Kris Kringle himself. But as you linger just a little bit longer in this place, you begin to notice all the irregularities it has, the pint-sized creases in its image. The way particular lights always stuttered in and out, but seldom ever got fixed. The ever-thickening rust forming on the play area equipment every season. The squeals of the carriage grow worse as the tortured screws struggle to keep the wheels in place. According to Roni, it was no secret that the park was experiencing non-stop financial troubles. In fact, since gaining traction from the late 70s to the early 90s, Slaytown had gone from a subtle decline to a slow and steady bleed-out in the 21st century. Although the families came back every year to purchase souvenir mugs and take-home trinkets, sustaining a park in a remote part of the state was becoming less feasible. Even as it attempted to remain open as a year-round resort for mountain bikers and horse riders, ends were still not being met. Inaccessibility from further out city areas had limited the park's reach for newcomers, because bills were expensive and Santa's stockings were thinning. But despite the location factor, the biggest hurdle in its path were the incidents that kept occurring. 
On November 19, 1997, a scream erupted from the line of guests waiting for their picture with Santa Claus. The disturbance had come from Norma Redding, a woman in her 70s, just a few spots away from it being her granddaughter's turn. Out of the blue, she'd thrown her body back in terror, jostling the family behind her and letting out an ear-splitting shriek, the color draining from her face. When finally calmed down enough, she claimed that the sacks behind Santa's chair were not full of toys or sprawling letters, but of bones. Human bones, all stacked and tumbling out of the bag's contents. She stated she could smell the dark, dry blood flaking off of them, and she could hear the clickety-clack of their hollow bodies rattling against one another. But the worst of it, she mentioned, was the raw skull that replaced Santa's face, gnarled and grinning toward her. The complaints, however severe, did not hold much water to them and were deemed as an older woman's eyes playing tricks on her, concluded with a free photo and discount voucher for the gift shop. Then, in 2005, December 15th, Another disturbance happened, this time earning Slaytown a new spot in the paper. Child suffers seizure in Santa's workshop. Max Barrett, one of the many children who visited the park that day, was in a section of the workshop where kids could occupy a seat and write a letter to Santa, hand-delivering it to him as they had their photos snapped. As he sat at the desk and put the finishing touches on his letter, he would later tell the EMT that he felt something strange, like a cold, rasping breath running down his neck. Then, as he looked up and toward the front room, he saw his name on the wall. Hi, Max, scrawled in wet, bleeding letters. His parents rushed to his aid, and when the episode had passed, he was checked over and cleared by a paramedic. Another unexplained occurrence, and although a potential lawsuit had nothing to sink its teeth into, the damage to the image of the park was done. It makes you wonder how many others had seen something in this place. A slight terror in their peripheral they chose not to double-take or speak up something that made them not come back again. Which brings me to the most particular note from Roni's list. Always count the reindeer. What's the deal with this one? I asked him, as Dawn arrived to conclude our final time together. Something you should do every shift, just in case, he answered, pausing a moment to pull on his coat. In case of what? His response was short as he beamed those ulcered gums. Reindeer games. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. On the way back to the parking lot, I asked what he meant by that, and surprisingly, the man so full of talk had little else to share. A wrought iron gate presented the entrance to Whimsy Way, standing eight feet tall and glassed over with ice. A lonely sprig of mistletoe hung from its span. Beyond it, the fleecy white trail narrowed and vanished into the dark bulk of woods where imagination was waiting. After a quick piss, I trudged on, whistling out in foggy puffs. Once taut in the spring, the trees now sagged drunkenly downward by the snow gripping their branches. From out of the covered pines, the first work of art emerged with a series of white snowmen heads stacked over on each other in a totem-like fashion, all graced with glassy eyes and black pebble smiles. Slightly further down, there was a row of Christmas trees shaped out of corrugated metal and sprayed with a dark green finish. Near them, a larger-than-life nutcracker stood tall with an axe in its hand and a frosty beard hanging from its articulated jaw. As the trail began its wide loop, I came across a small gingerbread hut nestled just off the paved track. Its roof was glossy, with decorative frosting, and shingled with fist-sized gumdrops. A single bite mark, left by either Hansel or Gretel, was fashioned out of its candy-crusted side. In its small yard, a tall, iron reindeer stared blankly toward me. Tangles of unlit Christmas lights coiled around its body. Stepping off the path, I shined a light through the sugar-lined window saw that no one was home, and plodded further down the trail. A sharp drift kicked up and scraped my cheeks. I took a strong gulp from the thermos to warm my throat. Coffee, a bit of cream, and just a tinge of love from my pocket. There were even more reindeer on this part of the trail. One crouched under a tree. Two battling with locked antlers. Another bent over to munch some non-existent grass, and one more prancing in sheer servine delight. I never bothered to count them, as Roni's list had instructed, as there didn't feel like any point behind it. Maybe it was just a tip to keep me focused during the shift, to keep all my senses honed. On the other hand, I figured it was also a way to screw with the new guy. Then I heard a sound behind me. My eyes darted back and then all around, seeing nothing but the sculptures and slumping thickets. Probably just some snow clump was falling off a branch and slapping the powder below. I was alone, as I had been dozens of times thumping up and down this trail. So, 
Why was there now a shakiness in my legs? An absolute dread creeping around my chest. I let out a breath, not realizing how long it had been trapped, and began walking faster. The sound came again, this time with more definition. Something like a whine. I stopped and looked back again, waving my flashlight around. Still nothing, but that wasn't true. Something was different. Off-kilter. My eyes wandered to each stock-still reindeer, unconsciously tallying them up. Two standing, two fighting, one prancing. But hadn't one been curled up under the tree? I took a few paces back to check. It was the same spot, but the sculpture beneath stood high on its legs, facing the trail. I walked around the tree, checking for the resting deer on the other side, but there was just the one, as though it had just stood up from its patch. Even the clashing reindeer looked different now, one bowing lower to the ground than it had been before. The chills were getting to me, making me doubt myself. Reindeer games, Roni's voice echoed in my skull, which immediately shoved away. I felt congested. My throat rubbed raw from the cold, my mouth somehow both dry and slimy. I pulled back another swig from the thermos, only to hack it all out as the sound returned, this time much louder and sharper. A grating, screeching sound, much like a squeaky swing at a playground. The thermos slipped from my grip and plopped at my feet, spreading a dark stain through the snow. I wiped a glove over my mouth, still coughing and gasping until my lungs settled. Then, as I ventured another look around, I just as quickly wished I hadn't, because there was nothing to doubt what I was seeing out there, all alone amidst the trees. The scene around me had changed entirely. The happy reindeer was no longer prancing, but holding its head low and toward me, like it meant to charge, one hoof raised and looking ready to slam back down, while one of the two fighting reindeer still held its original posture. The other had adopted a sort of strut closer to the path. Even the one behind them was no longer in its make-believe forage, but drawing its head high for a loud, wailing bugle. And to bring the madness to its peak, a new one had joined the fray. The reindeer I passed earlier, the one dazzled with Christmas lights, was now on the path just a few short hops away from me, a single red bulb stuttering in and out over its face. I strained my eyes shut and forced them back open. The sculptures were all still there, occupying their new spaces. An urge to run fired off in my legs, but instead came out as a steady walk backward, my eyes tracing everything and everywhere. It came again, the screech of disgruntled metal right up my left side. It was so loud, so close. I thought my life had just ended. One of the creature's metal faces peered out from a nearby tree. 
Once resting under the tree, the reindeer had advanced all the way up the side of the path to here. I'd taken my eyes off it for not even a second before it pulled closer. Was this an attempt to flank me? To block my escape? That's what it was. A game of red light, green light. Simple rules. Unknown stakes. The sound flared again, making my heart jolt painfully. Had I missed one? My eyes shot around, running a quick, unthinking check. Then, when I shined my light back to the deer peeping out from the tree, I saw its eyes. Not the smooth hemispheres of iron-rich inlay, but wet, reflecting lenses. Round and blued by winter. It was not just the placement of the reindeer that changed. That would be too merciful. The reindeer on the path, with its blinking red face, was now hunched wickedly forward. Its mouth peeled back into a terrible sneer of teeth, sharper than any caribou should have. The others had changed too, drawing closer in frozen approach. Their bodies were no longer silvery gray, but scarred with yellow-brown rust. Cirrus clouds air out of their nostrils, black salivating tongues dangling out of their far too open mouths. The world was getting smaller, condensing all around me at a slow but sure pace, like a dark force closing in on all sides, inching ever closer and demanding its existence, feasting on the thing I once considered reality. At that moment, for whatever reason in the world, I recalled something Roni had asked me during patrol, walking this same route. What do you think this place was back then? I mean, like before Santa came to town. What do you think was here first? I didn't have an answer for him, and as he asked this, I recall seeing his eyes scan over the tree line, perhaps not just admiring the art. I was paralyzed, too afraid to even blink, the cold clenching around my eyes as they rolled from one contaminated form to another. The sculptures would be primed for that horrible sound, just waiting to come again if I didn't move. Then, before it could, I tore my gaze away and started running. I hurtled down the trail, swallowing lumps of frigid air and then forcing them back out the breeze like glass against my gums. Behind me, I could hear them. Thuds raking the snow. Heavy, hurried gallops. Shrieks of metallic joints were never meant for movement. I felt the impulse to look back, actually to see them coming for me, but instead kept my teary eyes forward. Just ahead, I could see the trail completing its loop back to the park, ending the whimsy way trek. I pushed towards it, bypassing a glittery mesh of gift boxes stacked up to the heavens in a holly-jolly pyramid. A grey cat sculpture was peeking out from beneath one of the bows, its slit eyes following me as I passed by. My foot found an icy patch. I shambled forward, kicking up grit and bullets of snow, fortunately recovering without a nosedive. The screeches were closer than ever, deafening a wild chatter between my ears. At any moment, 
I would feel the instant force of antlers ripping through my sternum or the agony of serrated teeth finally sampling my hip. When the wrought iron arch finally became visible, I broke for it with the last stockpile of strength I had left. My legs did as they were told, pounding through the exhaustion in a mad hope for survival. I was never a runner in life, but at that moment, I swear, I could have sprinted with the best of them. The earth shook beneath me as the shrieks of tormented metal mounted up to an utter thrill of feral, murderous pressure. Then, as I flailed desperately through the gate, the world went completely quiet. My lungs were burning. My heart was pounding in strenuous disagreement. I fell to my knees, holding back the urge to vomit while also peering back down the way. Nothing was coming. No hordes of hellish iron reindeer or anything else tearing through the brush. But there was something I did see out there. Although the pursuit had stopped, the dark presence that chased me all this way had remained. Currently standing on the trail, a tall, shadowy figure, rippling like smoke out of a chimney. It was watching me, a dark blotch over cursed snow. Its blackness was so thick, it could only leave the suggestion of a greatly shaggy head. Shaky breaths puffed out of me. I squinted my eyes, trying to piece together the twitching, murky thing. From within the roiling darkness, I could barely make out the faint glows of white, writhing dully in the place eyes should have been. My gasp of breath brought me out of it, and when I blinked again, the thing was gone, leaving me there to shiver and stare. I no longer work as a security guard for Slaytown, and justly. I never plan to be anywhere near it again. Who knows if the future holds a love of my life and maybe one or two kids. But if it does, it means old dad will never bring them to see the stunning sculptures or ride the happy carriage. At least, not in that place. Never in that place. All the while, I'm sure the park will continue its copious bleeding until one day it goes terminal and a struggling owner ceases to keep their dream alive. Maybe to be sold off and renovated by new management, or maybe left behind as the permafrost sets in. Whatever happens to it, I am sure what I saw will still be there, festering like the mold beneath the workshop. Endlessly waning that cold Christmas silence. I hope you enjoyed Reindeer Games, as written by Michael Page and voiced by Nick Goroff. Michael Page is a short story author and aspiring novelist. 
He tends to delight in horror and thriller tales. Not all the pieces he writes will have their happy endings, but he assures you there will be no lack of trying. Page is always willing to attempt new genres or adopt different writing styles, but as he says, quote, it never hurts to keep your roots well-fed, unquote. Voice actor in 2016 Evil Idol champion Nick Garoff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of Cause. Our second tale of the evening comes to us from author That Scarecrow Guy and is performed by Kyle Stroud and Danielle Hewitt. As the world falls prey to an apocalyptic event that transforms preteen children into psychotic killers, one man desperately tries to make it home to his daughter before the sun sets, and she is lost to him forever. Now, without further ado, I present to you Last Christmas Eve. clock on the dashboard of Ethan's sports car read 3.51 p.m. Sunset was less than an hour away if his math held up. He knew he could have easily made it home before dark on any other day. Given this year's extraordinary level of inner-city holiday traffic, however, he was not sure how long the journey would take. The five-day-long out-of-state work conference followed by what had so far been nearly three hours of driving through a blinding snowfall had left Ethan feeling exhausted. At that moment, however, he felt no need for rest. His heart rate was up, and there was a flutter of nervous excitement in his gut. And all he cared about was making it home to his daughters for Christmas Eve. Ethan's ears rang with the constant blare of car horns and hoarse shouts of trapped motorists. The city, which in any other year would have been bedazzled by elaborate displays of Christmas lights, had taken on a bleak and gloomy appearance. The death of his wife earlier that summer and the lack of holiday displays had left Ethan with an unshakable feeling of despair, as if the entire world was slipping into darkness. At that point, all that mattered to Ethan was making it home before the sun set. He had spent so many nights attempting to bury his grief in his work leaving his daughters to handle the loss of their mother on their own. There was nothing he could do now to get back that lost time, but he sure as hell was not going to let them be alone that Christmas Eve. He decided to try to make another effort to call his eldest daughter, Madison. He had spoken to her shortly after he had crossed the state line, but he had tried twice since then and his calls had gone straight to voicemail. His fingers shook as he selected her from his list of contacts, and he was relieved when the line started ringing. The windshield wipers droned on steadily, dutifully clearing away the barrage of falling snowflakes as he listened to the sound of his daughter's phone ringing. The fifth ring was interrupted by the sound of a 13-year-old girl's voice. Dad? Madison, are you all right? Yes. 
heard some commotion a couple hours ago. It sounded like the neighbors down the hall were fighting. But everything's been quiet since then. And Hannah? She's... I, I think she's good. It seemed to Ethan that he picked up on a slight hesitation. She's not said much. I tried to get her to watch a movie with me, but she lost interest. I think she's just scared. I cleaned out the bathroom. I took out your razor and everything I could imagine being used as a weapon. There's nothing in there that she could hurt herself or anyone else with if it comes to it. When you say that she hasn't said much, Ethan pressed her, his tongue feeling dry and awkward as he forced the words out. Do, do you mean to say that she's becoming unresponsive? No, nothing like that, Madison replied earnestly. She still answers questions when I ask them. Her answers are usually short, but like I said, I don't think she's sick. I think she's just scared. I don't want to lock her in there yet, Dad. Maybe she won't get sick, you know? I know what they're saying on the news, but how could they really know anyway? Ethan wanted to reassure his daughter. He wanted to tell her that yes, there was a good chance that there were eight-year-old children out there that had been spared. The news was saying that the sickness was taking all of the world's preteen children. But could they really know that for sure? He wanted to believe that they were wrong. He wanted to hold on to that hope. In any case, Madison broke the silence. Nothing's supposed to happen before nightfall. That's what they're still saying, right? That's what they said, Ethan agreed. Still, I want you to keep a close eye on her. If she does anything that seems out of sorts, if she gives you any reason at all to doubt her, I want you to put her in the bathroom. I know it's going to be hard on her, being locked up before anything happens, but I'd rather you do it while she's still lucid than have it get to the point where you have to resort to violence. We still don't know what this is. It could run its course in a few days. Hannah might be okay when all of this is over. I'll be careful. Then, in a choked voice, she added, Hannah wanted me to ask, When are you coming home? The sun's gonna set soon, and she's worried that you might not make it back before she... Her voice trailed off. Ethan blinked back against the tears in his eyes, took a deep breath, and attempted to compose himself. I'm only about three miles away. Tell her that. I'm telling you, though, that traffic is barely moving. I'm still hoping to make it back before anything happens, but if I don't make it and you start to feel like something is off with your sister, don't wait for me. I'll tell her you'll be back soon, Madison replied in a whisper. Please hurry. I'll call when I'm close, Ethan promised. A prolonged silence hung over them, during which it seemed neither of them could find anything else to say. The silence was broken by a dull beeping sound indicating that Madison had hung up her phone. Ethan let out a deep, trembling exhalation and gripped the steering wheel tightly. The clouds in the distance were shimmering with the reflected orange glow of burning buildings. A string of looters ran across traffic a few cars ahead of him, but the sporadically placed first responders and members of the National Guard no longer seemed to care. Their sole purpose had become making preparations for what was coming when the sickness began to take hold of the city's children. The first reports of the virus, if it really was a virus, 
had come out of England. Cryptic, contradictory reports of missing children, mass hysteria, and riots. As more details came in, it was suggested that children under the age of 12 had been murdering their parents, congregating in the streets, and attempting to overwhelm members of law enforcement. Within that same hour, similar reports began to come out of Spain and Ireland, describing their children with terms such as bloodthirsty, rabid, and impervious to threats or pain. Over the next four hours, the sickness had spread westward, keeping pace with the setting of the sun, infecting Greenland, South America, and the east coast of the United States. As soon as the news reported that it had lost contact with their correspondent in Perry, Maine, Ethan and most of his colleagues had abandoned the conference and started out for their homes, racing against the setting sun. Some of his co-workers, Ethan knew, had flown in from the East Coast. Now that air traffic over the United States had been grounded, many of his colleagues had been forced to leave the conference in rental cars. It would take them days to get home if they made it back at all. By the sound of the news reports, Ethan doubted if they ever would. Ethan had decorated the apartment lightly for the holidays that year. The Christmas season had always been an important time for his wife, Joy. Every year, she had overseen an elaborate redecorating of their home, complete with a special tablecloth, dishes, towels, figurines, and those motion-activated musical animatronics that she was so fond of. Without her to guide him, Ethan had become unable to find the motivation to do much more than buy the most expensive pine tree he could find and encourage his daughters to decorate it however they saw fit. As he looked out at the darkened city, devoid of lights or festive displays of any kind, he wondered if they had all known, at least on a subconscious level, that this was coming. It was as if the whole world had known that Christmas this year was going to be a time of sorrow, and it had adorned itself accordingly. At home, there were gifts waiting under the tree, gifts that might never be opened. He had bought a microphone and speaker set for Hannah. She had used to sing all the time before her mother died, and Ethan was desperately hoping that this gift would revive that carefree part of her. He had also bought her a pop-up tent to replace those blanket forts that she loved to play under, but which kept falling down in her head whenever a corner came untucked. There was also a small leather purse, because she had said she wanted a proper, grown-up purse, like Mommy used to have. Ethan let out a sob and leaned back against the headrest. Would she ever get a chance to carry that grown-up purse? Would she even survive the night? If she did, what then? Would the sickness pass with the rising of the sun? Or would she scream and claw at the bathroom door for days until her fingers were reduced to bloody stumps and she either bled out or beat herself to death in her efforts to escape? He set his jaw and closed his eyes tight, hoping the pressure would drive the image from his mind. Behind him, he heard a car door slam. When he opened his eyes, he saw somebody running past his car. Ahead of him, more and more people started pouring out of their vehicles. To his horror, Ethan realized that the flow of traffic had stopped for good. Ethan looked at the clock on his dashboard. The time read two minutes past four. He had three miles between himself and his daughters, 
and the sun would set in less than 45 minutes. I can make it, he whispered. His hand shook as he extracted the key from the ignition, and when he opened the car door, he was met with a blast of cold air that stung his throat and made his eyes water. The snow on the ground was shallow and slushy, and Ethan's black dress shoes had not been made to handle such terrain. Several times he lost his footing and almost went down, and before long the slush had soaked through his socks and sent an ache into his bones. He jogged onward as fast as he dared, his shoes sliding and his feet becoming increasingly numb. Members of the National Guard stood about in small clusters, trying to rub warmth into their limbs, waiting for the inevitable. Some of them had eyes that had gone red from crying. How many of them had children of their own, Ethan wondered. The icy wind whipped through his suit coat and made his teeth click together, but he kept running. The sky grew darker, and the glare of distant fires became more discernible. Ethan pulled out his cell phone and saw that it was 4.28. He was getting close, but he only had a quarter of an hour left. He slowed his pace long enough to select Madison's number, and then he resumed running with the phone held to his ear. After a few rings, he heard his daughter's voice. Dad, where are you? I... I had to leave the, the car. The sentence came out through his chattering teeth in broken fragments. I'm, I'm close. Ten, ten or fifteen minutes. Hannah's crying. She said she didn't want to go into the bathroom before you get here. But now she won't stop crying. And she's hyperventilating. And I don't know what to do, Dad. She's starting to scare me. But she, she just might be upset. I, I don't want to put her by herself when she's like... Do it! Ethan cried. He had heard stories on the news about what the infected children were capable of. Stories about bestial monstrosities that would keep coming after you, even if you broke their legs, cut off their arms, or set them on fire. He was suddenly struck by a mental picture of what it would be like to come home and find Madison dead. Her entrails strewn about the apartment. With little Hannah standing and laughing over her sister's gored remains. Put her in the bathroom. Now, Ethan ordered. Tell her that it's going to be okay. Tell her that I love her. He could make out the sound of Madison sobbing over the howling of the chill wind. Then he heard her say, I love you, Dad. I love you too, Madison. He hung up the phone and tried to push himself to run just a little bit faster. By the time Ethan had reached his apartment building, the sun had dipped below the horizon, leaving a narrow red gash across the edge of the overcast sky. The snow slush was beginning to harden into a frozen crust, and the flakes were becoming larger and falling more slowly. Ethan climbed the steps to the third floor, leaning heavily upon the railing to take the weight off his faltering legs. He staggered down the hall, inserted his key into the lock, and threw the door open. Madison was sitting in the recliner on the left side of the apartment, facing the gauntly decorated Christmas tree. Her arms were hanging listlessly beside her, 
Her head was bowed, and strands of disheveled hair were hanging across her tear-streaked face. On the right side of the room, strings of Christmas lights ran tautly from out of the coat closet to the doorknob of the bathroom door, keeping it pulled shut. She's been quiet, Madison said. Her eyes seemed to have become focused on some distant point below the floor, and her voice sounded very tired. I can't tell if she's changed yet. She uttered the word changed in a detached and casual manner, as if she had forgotten what it meant. Then a sudden look of horror crossed her face as if the full weight of the situation had suddenly come crashing down upon her, and she let out a wail and brought a hand to her face. It's really going to happen, she sobbed. We're about to lose Hannah. Ethan staggered forward, his arms reaching out toward Madison. She rose from the chair and moved toward him unsteadily, wiping at her eyes with one hand. Ethan had almost reached her when Madison's other arm came up. There was a glint of steel on the edge of his peripheral vision, and Ethan felt a stab of pain just over his belt. Ethan glanced downward and stared at the carving fork his daughter had just plunged into his belly. The pain set in slowly, partially obliterated by his shock over what had just happened. Even as gastric acid began to leak out of his punctured stomach and leach out into the wound, Madison smiled at him, her eyes betraying a joy that Ethan had not seen since before his wife had died, and she withdrew the fork and brought her arm upward. The prongs sunk into the flesh between Ethan's jawbone and Adam's apple. He took a frantic step backward, dislodging the weapon from his throat while fighting to keep his balance. He felt hot, salty blood welling up in his mouth and rushing down his throat, and expelled it with a single spattering cough. Blood splashed against Madison's face as she followed after him, but her smile never faltered. The blood continued to pour down Ethan's windpipe, but he had no breath left with which to eject it. He drew a sharp, gurgling breath, drawing the blood into his chest, and then erupted into a fit of coughing that quickly changed into an empty, breathless retching. Dizzy, in the throes of agony and overwhelmed by grief, Ethan's vision went dark, and his legs faltered. Madison's laughter rang in his ears as he fell, and no sooner had he hit the floor than she threw herself upon him, shrieking in ecstasy as she plunged the carving fork into his body again and again. In due time, Madison dropped the carving fork beside Ethan's mangled body, went to the bathroom door, loosened the strings of Christmas lights, and swung the door open. Hannah came out, her eyes wide with anticipation. When she saw her dead father, she clapped her hands and squealed. Me next, she giggled. I want to kill the next one. There's plenty enough for all of us. <laughs> Madison reminded her with a laugh. Before we go out, do you want to help me with the decorations? The two sisters had not had so much fun in many, many years. The blood that ran down from where they nailed their father's body to the wall added a much-needed splash of festive red color to the room, and the way Madison strung out his intestines across the edges of the ceiling filled Hannah with glee. The two sisters stood side by side, watching as hot orange flames burned away the foul-smelling pine tree that their father had brought into their home, 
Outside, red and blue lights were flashing merrily, and they could hear the sounds of people screaming mingled with the sound of intermittent gunfire. The fire was beginning to take hold on the carpet by then, spreading outward from a pile of charring boxes, the melting remains of a microphone and speaker set, and a small, shriveling leather purse. Hannah smiled contentedly and leaned her head against Madison's arm. This really is going to be the best Christmas ever, isn't it? Yes, Madison replied. I believe it is. After that, the two sisters put on their coats, boots, and warmest pairs of gloves and went outside to play with the other children. I hope you enjoyed Last Christmas Eve, as written by That Scarecrow Guy, and performed by Danielle Hewitt and Kyle Stroud. Kyle Stroud's work can be found here on our network, as well as on his website at kylestroud.com. That's K-Y-L-E-S-T-R-O-U-D dot com. If you enjoyed Danielle's performance, you can hear more of her on the Chilling Tales YouTube channel, where she holds the third place championship title for 2019's Evil Idol competition. You'll also find more of her work on the Wicked Library and Creepy Podcast at www.creepypod.com. As for me, I'll be right here next week. Now... Our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week, when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs>Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, 
But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.